0: Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
2: Alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's actually quite unlike
0: anything we've ever seen before.
1: A giant hairy creature, part ape.
2: Welcome to another literary edition of Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. Today, we're going to go into the lab and sew together parts from our show and the macabre literature podcast of scholar Robert M. Price, which he calls the Lovecraft Geek. The format of his show is Q&A, and in this episode, Karen Stolzno and I will be playing the part of questioners. Most of these questions come from Monster Talk listeners, and if you enjoy this episode and would like to hear more from the Lovecraft Geek, you can send Bob questions by emailing him or by going to his Facebook page. Links to both of those will be in our show notes at monstertalk.org. Dr. Robert M. Price is a theologian and author of many books. He's also a well-regarded historian of H.P. Lovecraft and edited the venerable fan publication Crypt of Cthulhu. He's written for and edited many anthologies of Lovecraftian work. Links to many of these will be in our show notes for this episode. Bob's also been on Monster Talk before, discussing Cthulhu and the history of Satan. We now descend into the laboratory where, with Scalpel and Sledgehammer, we try to mash together our two shows into a hybrid creature for your enjoyment.
0: monster dog.
2: we're doing a special crossover episode with the lovecraft geek we've got bob price back on and bob has this podcast in addition to his bible geek podcast called the lovecraft geek podcast and it is a podcast where he answers a variety of questions and they are great and you should already be subscribing and download it's free uh we'll put links to that in the show notes and we'll put mm-hmm. links to all of Bob's stuff in the show notes. And Bob has many things to link to. So that make sure you go to monstertalk.org and check out the show notes. <laughs>
0: yeah, we've got lots of uh, listeners who are also Lovecraft fans.
2: Mm. This is true. Mm. So uh, do you want to start out with the first one, Karen?
0: Yeah, sure. So, uh, Bob, you've got a background in theology. And
2: I'm just curious to find out
0: how you went from theology to Lovecraft. And where do you see overlap between the two areas, if you see any overlap?
1: Well, I do. I was, uh, I guess it was when I was in junior high that I really got serious about religion and discovered Lovecraft. And I never really saw much of a contradiction, as I'm afraid some do. Uh, I eventually, years later, wrote an essay about this called uh, Christians in Horror Fiction, where I tried to show that. Uh, Contrary to this hysteria over Dungeons and Dragons that uh, most people have the ability to draw a line between reality and fantasy. Well, I'm no longer a religious believer, so I wouldn't quite put it that way. But for the sake of those who do believe that their religious doctrine is a description of the truth in the world, I still say that uh, in order to uh, appreciate any kind of supernatural fantasy or horror fiction, you have to have what uh, I think it was Coleridge called the temporary willing suspension of disbelief, uh, the poetic faith. You just have to um, – Put what you really believe about the world on the shelf, or you're never going to get anywhere. Enjoying it, it well, actually, in any movie, any drama, uh, you have to sort of get into it. Uh, Peter Berger calls it a, a finite province of meaning. Uh, when it's over, uh, the end comes comes up on the screen. Uh, okay, you snap out of it. You were willing, however, for the duration to uh, sort of perceive and receive this as if it were real. Well, if you're a devout Chris you shouldn't have any trouble with Lovecraft or vampires or whatever because you don't believe they're real, mm-hmm. right? I mean, you might believe that the devil is real and so on, but even, even there, uh, if you know something is a fiction, it's frightening because it's a different understanding of reality. And uh, and if you uh, think that uh, it's fun to to be momentarily frightened, and I think it is, uh, to, to excite the range of emotions, kind of like Aristotle said, uh, that the theater cleanses the soul of of pity and terror by means of pity and terror. Well, I, it's altogether wholesome. There are movies and and I guess books that that are degrading, but that's a bit of a different story. Uh, you you can put your mind in the gutter, but that's not what you're doing with with Lovecraft by any stretch. Mm-hmm. Now, so uh, I didn't really see a, a conflict. Uh, years later, I began to uh, understand, partly through a great essay by uh, Fritz Leiber, that the whole worldview of Lovecraft, which pretty much is embodied in this fiction, is uh, similar or really identical to the essence of religious experience according to Rudolf Otto and others namely it's the mysterium tremendum the the great mystery at which we tremble uh, like uh, Moses being afraid to look at God um, Isaiah in the temple seeing God on his throne and saying woe is me I am undone etc etc this you can find examples of holy terror in all religions ancient and modern uh, from Asclepius and Serapis worship to the Bhagavad Gita etc 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 and the idea is that um, in the basic religious experience you're encountering the holy other uh, and uh, the the infinite and you and it makes you recognize in humility your mere creaturehood that in the scheme of things, you don't amount to an atom. Uh, I think just studying astronomy can drive that home pretty fast. Like Eric Idle's character said, uh, sort of makes you feel insignificant, doesn't it? No, I guess <laughs> that, was, uh, that wasn't that was Eric Idle. That was uh, Terry hey, Jones. Jones. Yes. Yeah. Um, well, uh, th- th- what uh, Liber said is exactly right, that it- it's almost the cosmicism or the futilitarianism, as uh, Sprague de Camp calls it, of Lovecraft, uh, I am nothing. I have to recognize that I am not the center of all things, as I would like conceitedly to think. The human race is not the center of all things. the The difference is that, um, well, uh, even the other side of that coin, the mysterium fascinans, the the great unknown is is terrifying but also uh, endlessly fascinating. Uh, This is a reaction anybody has in a particularly rough horror movie. You cover your eyes, but you start peeking through your fingers. You're afraid of it, and yet you've got to see it. And that's just what happens to Lovecraft's doomed protagonists well in religion uh, the idea is that um, you are fascinated by the great mysterium uh, because uh, you sense that it it is that it offers fulfillment uh, you're terrified because your pitiful finitude is revealed but at the same time there is something greater, and perhaps uh, you can participate in it, which religion provides means of doing. So, I, I did a an article once called "Cosmic Fear" and the Fear of the Lord, showing how uh, showing this kind of parallelism, and how you can even see some remarks of Lovecraft and letters and stories that sound um, almost Buddhist, uh, which has a similar vision. So I think the two go hand in hand, not that it would matter to me if they didn't. And I don't don't feel like I have to have some sort of monomania that everything's got to fit together, but I do see a great commonality between these two.
2: I think um, as a theme, that sort of comes up in uh, the new Godzilla film. I just got back from watching that with my son oh. this morning. The uh, There's Godzilla destroying the city. And at the same time, people are piling up to worship him as a god because <laughs> uh, it's an awesome destructive force, which they can't understand. And, and worship is one of the out, outward ways that they are able to deal with it. And I think they kind of touched on that a little bit in the – in Del Toro's Pacific Rim, to some extent. And it's out worship, at least uh, uh, treating uh, the kaiju as though they were sacred in some
1: way and, and medicinally powerful, but, you know, mm-hmm. it's an interesting theme. There's one of the hymns of the Rig Veda addressed to Rudra, a god of the terrifying power of nature. It's it's very much like uh, the Monty Python scene in the same movie where they're uh, uh, where they're in the chapel service and John Cleese is lead. No, no, it's uh, Michael Palin leading the prayer. Uh, uh, Forgive us, Lord, for this our dreadful toadying, uh, and then he starts singing this litany. Don't. Uh, Burn or fry us, etc., etc. <laughs> well, yeah, in this hymn to Rudra, a, a whole lot of it is "Do not destroy us, Rudra," because the the power of nature could do just that. So sometimes. Worship is supplication out of fear, but probably the more refined version is the kind of thing Arthur Mackin talks about explicitly, that there is this incredible deep mystery that uh, even in its holiness could be too dangerous to experience, like the great God Pan.
2: So I have a question in two parts, and I'll do the first part. Maybe Karen can pick up part B. So, for, since our show, a, a lot of it deals with cryptozoology, and I was wondering about... Um, Lovecraft's work predates cryptozoology as a sort of cultural phenomenon, but, uh, but he does seem to pay attention to popular science and folklore. Mm. And uh, I wondered if you could tell me what stories do you think most closely correlate to uh, popular cryptid stories that we have today? And I'm specifically thinking about uh, reading that the Migo, or the, the fungi from Yagath, uh, or, or Migo is actually another name for Yeti, I know his, his version is very different because they're more lobster-like, but uh, but I wondered if if uh, if there were any cryptid tales that are any stories that you thought closely correspond with cryptozoology.
1: Well, uh, the Whisperer in Darkness, to which you refer, uh, certainly does because he has the element of people. Uh, have, uh, spreading rumors and, and uh, mystifying reports about these weird, huge, lobster-like uh, shapes washing down from the mountains in the spring thaw and so on. That's very much like the reports you still hear of lake monsters and the like. Uh, and people claim, yeah, they saw Bigfoot or some... Dinosaur in a river in Africa, and uh, it's not unreasonable. But you'd, you'd need to, to catch or film at least one of these things. Well, that's the kind of buildup Lovecraft gives uh, to the the me go in uh, in that story. So it sounds very much, and in fact, uh, um, Akeley is an amateur. Uh, anthropologist. And and so this interests him, the, both the folklore about these creatures and the contact with them. Like, why the heck doesn't he get up and leave? Well, he's uh, it's like the Mysterium Fastenons again. He, he can't bring himself to do that because he's in too deep. He's got to know. So I think that one is very much like cryptozoology, one that has in our day come to be uh closely Coincident with cryptozoology would be the shadow over Innsmouth. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, there were any speculations about or uh, witness claimed witnesses of uh, mermaids and all that. I mean, th- those seem to be so old as far as I know that they kind of just um, – would qualify as legends like leprechauns. I don't know if anybody's claiming to see leprechauns, at least when they're sober. Well, (laughs) but recently, uh, you know, a few years ago, there were these uh, pseudo documentary things. I don't know whether even on... uh, National yeah, Geographic or something about these uh, mer people, and boy, did they make it sound like they were really telling you! Uh, but it was really like uh, Orson Welles and War of the Worlds, unless you happen to catch the disclaimer. They were really trying to make you think that there were these uh, these sea apes that evolved into a different human race, and uh, and uh, that is, uh, I don't think they got the idea from Lovecraft, but that is uh, almost retroactively making the shadow over Innsmouth into a tale of cryptozoology. Uh, some of the other ones, like with Cthulhu and all that, they're just monster stories. Like there's no real connection with actual belief Whereas in that one, you've got the religious angle. Uh, he uh, sort of pokes fun at theosophy and the like in that one. And, and uh, Adventists, the Millerites, people sense that some great thing is about to happen and they gather wearing white sheets on hilltops waiting for the great uh, eschaton. Well, supposedly people did that in the 1840s with uh, the, the Adventist uh, hope that didn't uh, pan out, or in the um, the uh, shadow out of time, uh, that is completely based on Madame Blavatsky and theo- Theosophy, which Lovecraft learned of from E. Hoffman Price. Uh, but I, I, the, I'm trying to think if any others have a cryptozoological sort of connection. Um, well, you
2: reminded me that the uh, to some extent the Call of Cthulhu uh, Cthulhu himself is more based on historical legends of the kraken. I, I think lately the kraken's sort of been reinterpreted as being a giant squid, but originally it was more like the sort of island floating that you, you land on. The island, you find out, oh, it's not an island at all. It's actually an animal. So hmm. I, I'm I'm curious. Is I guess in in that sense that maybe that's also a, a, has a some relationship.
1: Yeah, that could well be. I I really enjoyed seeing the Kraken show up in that Geico commercial uh, and doing uh, <laughs> grabs <laughs> all the golfers <laughs> and so on. And, uh, I, I think the uh, was it in
2: uh, the Adventures of Baron Munchausen? The they uh, they the go inside the giant animal. That's kind of the, that's more how I pictured the Kraken is, uh, you know, or. This so big as to be, well, there's uh, a mountain walked stumbled, right? I mean, it's big, uh. really big. <laughs> mm.
0: <laughs> so if uh, Lovecraft were alive today and, and writing today, do you think that he would have incorporated the Chupacabra and Bigfoot type stories into his work?
1: Well, it certainly would be in harmony with what he actually did, so I sure wouldn't be surprised. Uh, that would uh, make a lot of sense. I mean, he's he's almost verging on that in The Curse of Yig, where he said these, these legends of this father of serpents and all that. And uh, I, I think he probably would. It, it, um, <laughs> I don't know if this is a... a an extrapolation from that kind of thing, but I did this story called "Digging Up Doomsday," which was based on the mound, uh, combining it with <laughs> with the robot versus the Aztec mummy. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, and because uh, both of them have something like an Aztec mummy and all that, but it, it, though it was ridiculous, uh, that could have qualified as like one of his revision tales where he was kind of kidding around with it. But I, or I did uh, one that uh, I guess just come out in a uh, tribute collection to Ramsey Campbell, uh, a bunch of stories based on the inhabitant of the lake. And my story in there is called in search of lake monsters, which probably was actually a title of one of these things in the seventies. And, uh, uh, though in this case, the lake monster is uh, glocky at, uh, uh, one of the old ones. And, and I put it in terms of, uh, film crew come in there to do a documentary and they go to brightchester university because there's a a folklorist there who's devoted his life to the study of this and so it's very easy in other words to do lovecraftian stuff with today's interest in these things so yeah i I imagine he would have done more with it
2: nice very good (laughs) (laughs) let's see here Uh, so speaking of uh that sort of thing we've got um in the in the Dreams of the Witch House, we've got this, the old witch, Kaziah Mason. She has this familiar called Brown Jenkin. And I think, well, we definitely talked about uh, Brown Jenkin uh, and this idea when we did our episode on this creature called Jeff the Talking Mongoose. And there was an episode called What's Good for the Mongoose, where we looked into the history of that. Um, that all took place around the right time. I'm just curious, is there any evidence that would link Lovecraft to. Uh, and, and link Lovecraft, having known about this uh, Jeff the takkimongo story and the creature brown Jenkins did do you know anything that we might
1: well about 30 out? years ago, will Murray did an article on this for uh, my uh, fanzine or whatever it is, uh, The Crypt of Cthulhu, where he said that he thought Lovecraft very likely got the idea from Jeff, the the talking mongoose. But as I remember, he didn't say Lovecraft ever actually mentions it, but he argues that given the popularity of it in the general area, that Lovecraft would almost have to have known about it. So he thinks by circumstantial evidence, it's more likely than not that that was the basis of uh, Brown. Jenkins,
2: do you happen to, to have a copy of that uh, that we could uh, like just that article? Maybe we could link to in the show notes or. or, or I not,
1: uh, yeah, know. I have it somewhere though, not not in electronic form. Okay. Uh, I don't even know what issue it was in. I could check with uh, Will and see if he has it in any electronic form.
2: That would be awesome. I'd love to read it, even if if, mm. if it's okay to put it on the show notes, it'd be fantastic. But if it's not, I would just be delighted to read it. Yeah, I, I know. Several researchers have talked to me about the possibility of trying to find out if uh, the newspapers were printing the story in the area where Lovecraft was living at the time. You know, Again, that would still be circumstantial, but uh, we, we just I'm very curious about how prominent the story was at the time, but it certainly mm-hmm. seemed to get a lot of play, at least in the U.K.
1: Well, that is what Will Murray delved into. I just can't remember the specifics, but I think he did come up with stuff like that. Fantastic.
0: Our next question is about a paragraph long, so I'll try and cut it down a little bit. So it's in regards to the dreams in the witch house. Uh, And so this listener uh, was concerned with the part where the protagonist repels a witch with a cheap crucifix. Mm. Uh, So this person was wondering if Lovecraft was maybe influenced by the film version of uh, Dracula where there's a similar scene.
1: It might have been. Uh, in fact, that's the biggest point of uh, the biggest question in connection with that story because Lovecraft seems to just regard conventional religion as whether Christianity, uh, Judaism, Islam, he mentions all of them as just uh, confused anticipations of, of what would be discovered or, or a merciful cloaking of the terrible truth in mythological terms. So if he introduces Niall Athotep as the black man of the witch's Sabbath, is he really going to have a, a, a crucifix, drive him away? I mean, that, that seemed to everybody just real strange. <laughs> and uh, if he... I heard an interesting... Theory about this from a friend of mine, Ed Babinski, who's an expert in the creation versus evolution debates and the ancient history and biblical studies. He's in, he works in a in the Furman uh, Library down in South Carolina he suggested that it was possible that what Lovecraft had in mind was the fact that the cross would have right angles and that that runs afoul of the, uh, oddly angled universes in which the old ones dwell. Uh, that's not obvious, but it's, <laughs> I'd have to say that, uh, in terms of the logic of the story by default, that's the best theory I've ever heard. Um, Though he he may have gotten the crucifix uh, thing from Dracula, I I wouldn't be surprised, though the question remains, why the heck would he put it in there? Uh, This is the kind of thing Dirk Mosig sneered at in his uh, essay, H.P. Lovecraft Myth Maker, where he just really blasted August Derleth and his version of the the Old Ones versus the Elder Gods. And he says that the star stones that Derleth has the, the good guys use it's as cheap, puerile as the use of crucifixes in, in uh, bad uh, vampire movies. Uh, well, it, you'd think Lovecraft would have shared that view, so why did he do it? And my guess is, and again, this is not that compelling, that he's nodding to Frank Belknap Long, who had uh, in um, The Space Eaters a, uh, a, a an epigraph that was cut out for the weird the original weird tales Publication, but which Lovecraft would have seen in manuscript, in which um, it's a quote from the Necronomicon of John D. That's a long added that little element that John D. had translated it, or he might have even thought D. had written it. I, I don't know. But he says the cross is a potent symbol, which has often appeared above our Sabbaths and dispelled, uh, you know, whatever we were conjuring up. And uh, that's I think he he didn't have that. Long didn't have that uh uh firm grasp on the developing uh, mythology or he didn't care why should he but I have a hunch that the the role of the cross in that story is a nod to uh, Long's necronomicon passage since he did pick up the John D thing I'm I'm guessing he he picked up the 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 at-homeness of the cross uh, as as an atro what is it? Apotropaic agent uh, driving away evil from long, but I don't know. That's the only thing that makes sense to me.
2: So there used to be. This is sort of an opinion question. There was a time when there was very little Lovecraft on the big screen, and I think whether that was because of the content or because of how difficult it would have been to bring the special effects to to play. I'm not sure, but now there's lots. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any of those uh, films? that you feel like are essentials, that if people who who like the stories would really enjoy the the pictures or which do a better job
1: of of conveying the Lovecraftian feel? Well, the Lovecraft Historical Society's film of uh, The Call of Cthulhu, I like very much. And uh, I have not yet, I'm ashamed to say, seen their version of The Whisperer in darkness, but I'm sure that would satisfy the Lovecraftian fans beyond that i thought the uh, the film cthulhu which is really kind of an updated version of the shadow over insmouth i thought on the whole that was really very effective i mean it, it's it's inspired by it it's not all that faithful to it in specifics but i thought they um they uh filled in a real world context that i guess they felt they had to to make a modern film out of it and yet, you still ha- like one thing I thought was great about it the uh, protagonist is the alienated son of a cult leader who believes in the old ones and all of that. And he's disappointed in his son because he's gay for one thing. I don't know why that would offend any Lovecraftian cult leader. Uh, And he doesn't believe in the family religion. He thinks it's just a bunch of hokum. Well, there's a scene where because of a funeral, the guy goes back to his home and they're having dinner uh, with the family and his father is trying to, uh, argue him into believing in the Cult of Dagon or whatever, and somebody really did their homework because it sounds like a real member of a uh, kind of a weird religion making a respectable-sounding case for it. And then weird things happen. And when the uh, Cthulhu Apocalypse actually comes, they don't have the budget to do uh, like what uh, Del Toro would do, and yet it's very effective. And I, I have to really hand it to. I uh, th- th- I think this movie Cthulhu uh, that would uh, I think all uh, Lovecraft fanatics ought to see that. Uh there are other ones but um I, I have to admit uh, the more I see them the more I really like uh the big 3 from the late 60s Die Monster Die based on the color out of space then the Dunwich horror and um Uh, The Haunted Palace, based on Charles Dexter Ward. Uh, They're they're pretty loose adaptations, but uh, they kind of have a lot going for them, and uh, I I guess they're still my favorites. I think um,
2: there's some that sort of uh, just sort of tangentially touch on it. There's a film called The Beyond by Fulci, uh, the Italian director, and it's got a book called The Book of Ibon which shows up in there and then it's um, it does a really good job of, uh, of creating a very surreal feel. Hmm. Um, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to see it. It's not a film. It's strange. I don't know that I can recommend it to everyone because it's uh, it's a lot of Italian films from the eighties uh, are almost like let's set up this horror scene and set up this horror scene and set up this horror scene and loosely tie them together. And it'll be a film But it's more about pulling off the the gags, if you will, uh, than about a really tight narrative. But the funny effect is that if you watch the Beyond, um, because of that loose feel, it becomes really surreal. Because it almost seems like a dream, how in a dream you can hop from one place to another and to another. And the ending is deeply unsatisfying in a way that I think Lovecraft would have been very proud of. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I, I would say that's that's one you might want to check out and then you made a pick the other day with David Niven and I picked it up I haven't had a chance to watch uh and I say the other day I it was probably technically the other year but I was listening to the Lovecraft <laughs> episodes and uh, it was uh, one where David Niven uh, and there's a, a cult scene in the woods and you said it was streaming I, I picked it up but I haven't watched it you remember that one I
1: uh-huh. of the devil. Probably.
2: I of the devil. That's the one. Okay. So that's on
1: my to watch list. Oh, what a movie. Uh, it's yeah. in my opinion, it's like, uh, it, it's the same theme as, uh, the wicker man and equally impressive, but Ooh, totally wow. different. Uh, and, uh, I, I was just talking to my daughter about this. I showed it to her last, uh, October. She and I have these monster horror film festivals, uh, the whole of October Nice and, uh, She's out in Minneapolis now, though. Uh, So uh, she watched Eye of the Devil again the other day. And I I, I remember, oh, boy, in the late 70s, early 80s, way late at night, I was flipping through the channels. I happened to see a scene where Deborah Carr is out in the woods visiting uh, a mausoleum of their family. And carving into the seal of it is this thing. It says uh, um, there are i would I would be saved, and I would save. Uh, I have. Uh something or other, uh, but 12 dance on high. He who danceth not knoweth not what cometh to pass. I thought, what is that? And I just <laughs> wrote it down. I didn't know what movie I was watching, and it was impossible to tell. And uh, so I, I later, years later, was reading uh, an apocryphal New Testament book, The Acts of John, and there it was in a, a ritual called The Round Dance of the Savior. It's a Gnostic um, sort of a thing, and and uh, the Twelve are the Apostles, and it, it's uh, that is fascinating in its own right. Well, this movie dealt with that. Years later, in 1981, I was at a reception after a philosophy and religion department discussion, and um, that's where I met Carol, who I'm married to now, and uh, and uh, I, I was watching it, and she came over, we were talking a bit, and then I needed to take somebody else home. I was driving back, and I thought, gee, if I turn off here, I can go back uh, to to the apartment there and talk to this girl again, uh, or I can go home and watch the rest of the movie that I saw the beginning of there, and I thought, I'll go back and talk to her, and now we're, we're we've been married for thirty years and uh, wow so that <laughs> the right means choice. A lot to me, but even without that, it is fascinating it 's based on a book called uh, well it 's under different titles thirteen uh the Eye of the Devil, and I think there's yet another one it 's like It's uh, by, uh, I think, Philip Lorraine, and it goes into more of the mystery religion background, but you don't really need to know it to find it to be a a kind of a breathless, surreal uh, experience seeing this. It's just terrific.
2: and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon.
1: Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Kat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby award-winning box of oddities podcast from Airwave Media.
2: I'm really looking forward to it. That sounds wow. great.
1: Yeah. No,
0: now I've got a more, much more general question. And uh, that is, what do you feel defines a Lovecraft story?
1: I think of them as Faustian mysteries. Uh, There's this idea that uh, uh, some strange question pops up. uh, Gilman studying non-Euclidean geometry, finding out about how Keziah Mason must have known about it. Gee, I got to find out what's going on here and so on. Or uh, the guy uh, in... uh, in uh, the call of Cthulhu reads this uh, manuscript of, it looks at this file of stuff that his uncle uh, had put together and he says, what's going on here? And, and again, and again, uh, uh Blake sees the, the, um, the uh, chapel, uh, the uh, the steeple in the distance, uh, on College Hill, and just has to go find out what's there, and he finds the Necronomicon and so forth. So the, a mystery is afoot, as they say, and and uh, the more you dig into it, the more frightening, the more philosophically disillusioning, and finally, the more dangerous uh, it becomes. But you you are willing to accept the results, take the risk, or even if it isn't a risk, even if you know damnation lies that way, you've got to know. Uh, so there's this idea of of Faust that he's he'll sell his soul to Mephistopheles if he can only find out the truth, et cetera. And I, I think that's the, uh, to, to me, that's what characterizes most of his fiction. Okay.
0: Very interesting.
1: Awesome. So um, after Lovecraft, this is another one of our
2: questions from the internet. Uh, after Lovecraft, which authors and stories do you think most faithfully captured Lovecraftian mood and feel?
1: I One of my favorites is uh, Derleth's um, The Lurker at the Threshold. I think he does a good job of genuinely pastiching Lovecraft in the first two thirds of it, because uh, it, it's like a serial novel, uh, it it could easily have been published as three separate stories, but in fact it wasn't. But the the third part of it veers off the track and gets into the stuff that Durleth gets um, maligned for the the good guys versus the bad guys and and so forth. So I talk about hubris uh, many years ago. I decided I would write a new third. Um, section of it that would uh, carry it on more consistently in a lovecraft uh direction and it was called the round tower uh, but st- i wouldn't have bothered if i hadn't have thought the beginning of it was genuinely effectively lovecraftian um he did other ones that uh, derleth did a lot of other ones that are kind of uh pot boilers but loads of fun to read and many of them do have a Lovecraftian ambiance though they're they're definitely uh second or third rate attempts um uh, Robert Block I think sticks the closest uh, in his early work and uh, th- there he's got the very much the same range of uh dangers and secrets and his, his uh uh occult books like uh De Vermis Mysterious and Cult de Ghoul, which uh people always think August Derleth wrote because it was supposed to be written by the Comte Derleth, but that was Bloch's invention. Uh that's a shout out to Derleth. Uh and I think he did a great job. And and here I gotta mention something else about a movie. Just the day before yesterday I watched Dark Intruder from uh about 1960 or so. This was an hour-long failed pilot for a TV show that I wish they had uh, picked up. Leslie Nielsen is the main character, and he plays... Uh, um, an occult investigator in Victorian-era San Francisco, and uh, he's taught, and it's it's got definite Lovecraft and Block influences. Uh, the guy starts saying, well, this kind of idol comes from the Hogar region where they worshipped gods like Azathoth and Dagon. And I go, what? what? I, I can't believe this. Why have I never heard of this? And later on, uh, some guy's invoking the mindless chaos, and there's there's it, various things that make it clear somebody here was a fan of Lovecraft and block both uh, and and it's uh it's it's really a good thing a good movie i'm I'm just so sorry that didn't uh, didn't get uh, a permanent slot but uh block I think is great um it's uh, people other people start going in other directions like Brian Lumley uh, very quickly took a lot of Lovecraft that he liked but began to Spin it out with all kinds of influences, like um, uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs on the one hand, uh, The Wizard of Oz on the other. Uh, some of his stuff sounds more like loony, like EC Comics, and I love all of it. But some people just can't forgive him. Oh, it's not exactly like Lovecraft. Look, does it have to be? What do what <laughs> you? Uh, Ramsey Campbell, I think, uh, remains very faithful in spirit from his early work to his later work uh today the uh the joe pulver has a novel his first one uh, nightmares disciple is very much genuinely lovecraftian and and in a hard boiled detective uh hybrid it's very effective and uh, two of my favorite writers besides joe uh, today are Cody Goodfellow, who just, I- this guy's a literary alchemist. The way he m- melds techno thrillers and hard-boiled detective with uh, splatter punk and genuine Lovecraftian vision, this guy is a is an inspired madman. Uh, and uh, he beats me at my own game, by the way. He, he does... Uh, uh, Cthulhu prayer breakfast better than I ever did. Wow. And, uh, and by the way, he's an extra on American Horror Story this season. Neat. Uh, so, I mean, you, you got, uh, Cuba Gooding, you got Lady Gaga. Who cares? I want to see more Cody Goodfellow. Surprise
2: uh, surprised <laughs> me. I heard, uh, 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 Splatterpunk, uh, was a big thing in the 80s with the, I, uh, John Craig and Skip Spectre wrote a lot of books I really liked. And, uh, I haven't heard that phrase in a while. I love it. So
1: well, in fact, Cody co-wrote something rather with uh, Skip. Oh, neat! And, and uh, his his uh, two parter, um, "Radiant Dawn" and "Ravenous Dusk" is incredibly good. Uh, I, I just cannot get over the 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 excellence of that Lovecraftian work. And then Laird Barron, this guy, incredible. He he does just the right thing. He often has a true Lovecraftian vision and, and feeling, but he doesn't start throwing all the regular names at you. And mm-hmm. I think you that's the wise course, because otherwise you're going to read Cthulhu, Yog sothoth what, again? Like, there's too much of it. I love that stuff. But uh, there's... Way too much of it, and it just becomes—it's uh, like your car flooding. Uh, you you can't get anywhere unless you try to do something new. And and he does. Mark Rainey uh, often goes in a genuinely Lovecraftian uh, visionary direction.
2: Okay, that's interesting because you know Jack Laird was Laird is the last name was one of the producers or co-producers of uh, Night Gallery, which did a mm-hmm. lot of Lovecraft stuff.
1: So I think he had something to do with Dark Intruder also. Interesting. Oh, you know,
2: and so Jeb Card had actually recommended Dark Intruder just a couple of weeks ago, and I put it down in my to watch list and so I haven't watched it yet. So I uh, definitely will. Uh, you know what I think? Ambitious for me to say this, but what I'll try to do is in the show notes for this episode, put a list of all the direct Lovecraft uh, movies that I can find, and then sort of like the one generation off inspired stuff. It's going to be a long list. <laughs> Cram as many as I can into the show notes for people to take a look at. I I love I love all of them because I appreciate the effort. But, I mean, I, I never really glommed on to, like, the Stuart Gordon stuff because of the way it added in sexuality to the stories. And I kind of preferred them as sort of these raw, intellectual, asexual-type adventures. And there mm. didn't really seem to be a lot of that in the original Lovecraft Tales. Except... There's this sort of weird implication that happens in uh, Shadow of Innsmouth that they don't really explicitly state, but I have to assume that uh, since a lot of this is hybridization between humans and fish people, mm. that wasn't an entirely consensual affair, so, <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. but well, that's not
1: really explored very much, so... Like Lavinia's um, blind date with Yog Sothoth. A you know, good the point. Well. Yes, exactly. The, 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 uh, yeah, The date rape drug. You know. So.
0: Yeah. You guys are geeks for sure.
1: Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, so we've got a monster-related uh, question here. So, what do you think Lovecraft was using as inspiration for
1: his monsters? Well, I, I do think, though I don't believe he explicitly mentions it anywhere, I could be wrong, I think the Kraken certainly is is a biggie. Um, the... Uh in a to some degree, Wilbur Whateley was inspired by Helen Vaughan in Macken's The Great God Pan. Not so much an outward appearance, but the idea of him being a blasphemous hybrid from the outer spheres, and then the, his death scene where he he morphs and uh, in, into a different state. That's that's clearly inspired by the end of uh, The Great God Pan. Um, The uh, Black Goat of the Woods with a Thousand Young, though that that appears to be metaphorical given the way Lovecraft describes Shubnagurath in a letter to Willis Conover as a uh, cloud-like entity, it's hard to believe that isn't based on uh, the Baphomet goat uh, of uh, medieval witchcraft and uh, the... the, uh, the uh, Catholic version of the Knights Templar, the idea that they were uh, ritually kissing the butt of a of a, the Baphomet. Of course, that was all nonsense because they didn't understand that Baphomet was just the old French spelling of Mahomet or Muhammad. Uh, and the idea was that the Templars had uh, converted to Islam and uh, they didn't understand it. And it became just an outrageous thing, but uh, at least we got the, uh, the black goat to the woods out of it. Um, Athoth it's possible that, that that is based on either or both Anathoth the uh, hometown of the prophet Jeremiah uh, and that name is interesting, especially because it's the plural of Anat, uh, the consort of Baal. She's mentioned all the time in the Old Testament because she was worshipped by uh, Israelites, and um, so it's possible he he had that in mind because he did read the King James Bible. Also, there was some astronomical or astrological book called Azoth, A Z O T H. So that's that's conceivable. Uh, yog sothoth it's uh, I know Richard Terry and others fictively equate him with Yahweh or Jehovah but I, I'm not sure and Lovecraft even associates the two in a letter where he says that uh, I I'm, um, I would contend that uh, Jehovah is no more real than my Yag sothoth but that doesn't really say that he got the idea from that uh, so, I, I mean, you certainly got Thoth, uh, though I don't believe you really pronounce it that way, from uh, from popular knowledge of uh, Egyptian religion. Uh, who we got left there? Um, Nyarlathotep, th- that certainly, though, though he has no one form, though that's kind of the whole idea, he's kind of like Proteus. He certainly must have gotten at least the name from Lord Dunsany, because uh, Dunsany mentions a prophet called uh, Minarthetep and a god called al hotep And he, uh, though the name came to Lovecraft in a dream, I, I'd certainly bet that he um, got the, the, it came to him because he had these things, you know, ricocheting around in his subconscious mind. And Hastur, of course, they just borrowed that from Chambers, and uh, Sathagua from uh, from Smith. Uh, where Smith got it, I, I'm not sure, but uh, but those, I guess, that's the inspiration. Oh, by the way, speaking of monsters and old ones, uh, Joe Brewers, Broers, B R O E R S, does these incredible sculptures of of uh, oh, he did a great one from. I think it was he who did uh, Brown Jenkin, which is uh, uh, statues of that are given out of the Lovecraft film festival, but he's, uh, he's done a great King in yellow one of all sorts of sculptures. And his latest one is of Ron Tegath. the much neglected old one who appears in the horror in the museum and uh, it's really terrific and he sells these things and they can be ordered off of uh, his site in deviant art uh, and so uh if if other idolaters out there want to uh beef up their their uh blasphemous and detestable uh, altars at home uh, you might want to get the likeness <laughs> of ron tegoff
2: well, one of the things that this is not directly from one of our listeners, but the um, uh, the idea, like the, the way that uh, Lovecraft has influenced so many other writers, you talk about that uh, a little bit. Well, actually, you talk about it quite a bit on your other episodes. Um, but it may be new to um, our listeners. I guess one of the things I'm curious about is, I, you know when my kids are growing up they always think oh well so and so ripped off that idea from someone else and they ripped off that idea from this other person it's like i used to think that way about lovecraft but it seems more like uh that it's like a virus that's infected american literature Do, would you care to talk about that a little bit about the way it's grown and spread throughout uh american horror literature and maybe even the science fiction some
1: yeah, there's a, a phrase in one of Lovecraft's stories, I think of the Dunwich Horror, uh, that studying the Necronomicon or the death of Wilbur Whateley or some kind of big thing promises to open up new lines of inquiry in metaphysical and other matters. Well, that's kind of what happened with Lovecraft's, uh, work that it opened up new possibilities and new lines of literary dissent because uh, any fool can see, if you've read any of Algernon Blackwood or uh, Arthur Mackin or Lord Dunsany, uh, you you can see that right in Lovecraft. I mean, in fact, so much of my favorite Lovecraft story, the Dunwich Horror, comes right out of Arthur Mackin, plus some other stuff like uh, Harper Williams' uh, thing in the in the woods, uh, and and various other things uh, crossbred with um, the uh, lore of the Jersey Devil and uh, all sorts of things. It, it's all it's very much like. Derleth's use of Lovecraft. I mean, there is so much of it in there. Well, would it be, I mean, so people often say, look at Derleth, he just ripped off Lovecraft. I, like you say, I cannot see it that way anymore. Whether he did it well or badly is another issue, though I like his stuff. But, um, Did Lovecraft rip off Macken? Uh, Of course not. Uh, He he liked what he saw and said, boy, I bet I could do something interesting with that. I'm glad when that happens. I don't view it as a lack of originality. The originality comes with what you go on to do with it. And uh, like, I love Robert E. Howard and Conan and King Cull and all that. I love Edgar Rice Burroughs, John Carter of Mars. Um, And I love Lynn Carter, who decided, to hybridize uh, Burroughs and Howard and wrote these Thongor uh, books. Uh, And I I love it. He did a great job. Oh, but it wasn't completely original. Who the hell cares? What are you, the <laughs> copyright office? Uh, and, and, and it's not stealing it. It's obviously an homage. And the same thing with Lovecraft. And it does continue to evolve. Like I mentioned with uh, with Laird Barron, for example, or, or Pulver or uh, Goodfellow. These guys are doing their own thing, and yet there is definite Lovecraft inheritance in it. I love to see this stuff evolve. And um, th- there is such a thing as Lovecraftian fiction, ostensibly Lovecraftian fiction, that really just throws a few names in, and it really has nothing to do with it. Well, that I'm not too interested in, though. You know, it's neither here nor there. But you, you sort of want to see new things done with it, and uh, not because you're tired of the old, but it's the next best thing to Lovecraft still being around and evolving himself.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, we've got a question about uh, the theater. So have there been any successful stage adaptations of
1: Lovecraft? I don't know. I, I know there have been a couple of um, stage uh, productions about Lovecraft himself, but I've never seen any, uh, so I, I can't really uh, comment. I mean, it's the same with most of these movies. That I, There's so many of them. I no longer mm. even try to keep up with that, uh, so I'm a bad one to ask about that. <laughs> sure.
2: It, it does uh, it, it, with each generation that that takes some of these materials and rifts on them it gets really difficult to keep track of it it mm. expands and expands so i imagine that uh, because of the nature of copying and people uh, reproducing it will become exponentially difficult to do so,
1: <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. so um, yeah I, so, I find that already i just uh there's uh, oh here's another mythos anthology well it'd probably be real good but uh i haven't read lovecraft himself in uh, 20 or 30 years i gotta get back to that i'd rather do that and it's just uh the wor- history has passed me by already and i'm not complaining but it's a whole new world a brave new world that hath such lovecraftians in it <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I i often uh, wish i could uh live forever uh, not because I think I'm great,
1: but just because there's so much to read, I need to catch up on. So too little time. well, Lovecraft uh, himself said that's the big reason not to commit suicide. There's too much interesting to, to experience and find out about. You don't really need meaning if you've got fun. That's fun. <laughs> so uh, one of our listeners would like to know, and I apologize to
2: our listeners, by the way, I, I kind of copied all these questions into uh, a document to keep track of them, and then failed to keep people's names with it. So you can make uh, up
0: names. Uh,
2: thanks, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks, Lovecraft. For, uh, Henry Akeley asks. <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, so, what is Lovecraft's relationship with science and skepticism?
1: Well, he uh, certainly took a dim view of all this stuff uh, he he and um cm eddy wrote uh, this book the cancer of superstition I, I think it was to be published under houdini's name just as he wrote um, imprisoned with a pharaohs slash um Un, under, uh, under the Pyramids, uh, uh, Ghost wrote it for Houdini, but he uh, had nothing for, for that kind of thing. He would have been a great, he'd have been great on this skeptic panel at, uh, at Dragon Con. He thought that, uh, he, he had dreams, for instance, that he said another might interpret as uh, memories of a previous life, but he kind of laughed that off, and uh, he he didn't have any regard for the truth claims of religion. Though he was not hostile to religion, he thought it served a a, a good social purpose, and I, I don't think he had anything. and And this this recurrent myth that Lovecraft was an occultist and a member of the Golden Dawn is pure fantasy. It's like an urban legend. So he was, by his own repeated emphatic confession, a naturalist, an atheist, a rationalist, a materialist. So he he thought Plato had ruined philosophy with his uh, world of form. So he he was the big time skeptic.
2: So uh, I was going to say the the Houdini, there was recently they found the manuscript of uh
1: what was it the um i think it was that cancer of superstition thing yeah and i from what i read though i'm uh, forgetting some of it now it wasn't that big a deal that most of that material was already known somebody who just didn't know that uh thought it was this major discovery um, but uh, I'm, I'm not sure if there's any new material in it or if we now have the whole work. I, I, I don't know if they ever finished it, but we've never had the whole thing. I, if this is it, I you know, hope so. But I doubt if I'd ever get around to reading it anyway. No worries. Thanks.
0: Okay, just a final few questions here. Uh, So this person asks, I heard that uh, Lovecraft evolved on his racist and xenophobic views near the end of his life. Is this accurate or just wishful thinking?
1: I know he did go uh, in the direction of socialism very clearly, but I think it's uh, kind of a wishful thinking myth that he... uh, got over racism. Uh, Sprague de Camp in his biography indicated that he had, but, um, S.T. Joshi, who, of course, is the great partisan uh, of Lovecraft, um, admitted that no, a a close, uh, well, any kind of reading of his letters toward the end of his life make it clear he hadn't changed his mind on that. At least uh, it was uh, in the abstract with him because he had uh, Jewish friends and complimented an African-American artist and all that. So when he met individuals, uh, he seemed to, to give them an even break. But of course, uh, the racism he uh, espoused is, uh, is disgusting. Uh, people make such a big deal out of that, I think, because they their hero worshipers of lovecraft and and it, they don't want there to be clay feet whereas i feel like if we knew nothing about lovecraft if we had no letters no memoirs of him by his friends and just had his fiction uh, that's all i'd be interested in i mean as an individual he is interesting but i don't really i mean heidegger was a member of the nazi party uh, that's that's pretty bad but i just don't see how that affects uh, being and time, and and his philosophy and all that. I mean, if, if he if it was predicated on racism, anti-Semitism, Nazism, that'd be another thing. But but it isn't. So you know what the heck. Uh, it's it's too bad. Uh, maybe they're roasting in hell now. But that you know, I'm only interested in the writings, really. That's a that's a
2: really interesting point. The uh, I think, especially lately on on social media, it, it becomes. Uh, very easy to sort of uh, write people off for something mm. that's wrong with what they do. So you make them an outcast because of something. Uh, but people are complicated. I mean, everybody's complicated. And, and mm. the good that we do and the bad that we do, people don't know the full nature of it. I think this is something as a, an English major that, that came up a lot was, is it possible to enjoy the works and at the same time repudiate the character of the person who wrote them? And I think it is. I think you can just compartmentalize If you try, enjoy a book if you like it. If you don't like the author's views, reading their work, maybe with the exception of Mein
1: Kampf, is generally okay. (laughs) You gotta keep them apart. Uh, and that's just what I'm saying is not yeah. true about Heidegger. He was a Nazi, but yeah. it doesn't uh, show up in his work. Uh, no damn good uh, as, as a person, but I, I just don't, he's not, it's like being in time is not Mein Kampf. It isn't about that stuff. And in fact, it's an elementary thing in literary criticism to speak of the uh, distinguishing between the actual author the implied author, and the narrator, uh, they, they can be very different people and you can start inferring things about the author that may not be true of the real author because they're consciously writing from a certain pose. I mean, in an extreme example, like I know a guy that, a uh, Stefan Aletti, who wrote a whole bunch of, uh, uh, horror stories uh, from the standpoint of of women and sometimes specifically of lesbians. He did this on a dare because he was in a bookstore and he was happening to look over the this bin of lesbian paperbacks. And this woman next to him said, "You have no business reading this. Uh, you could never write it." And He said, "Oh yeah." And so he he started writing these things and getting them published under a pseudonym. And and so he his the implied author is not necessarily the real author. And um, so, it's uh, it, it, if it happens that it is, it doesn't really make any difference. Aren't you interested in the the implied author, the standpoint from which it is written, uh, and then then the narrator, uh, what he says, and all that uh, she says? But um, it, it's just to co- to confuse this shows a fundamental error in in in, in literary criticism. I guess well, it's just like being able to watch Tom Cruise in a movie. Well, yeah, that's. a good yeah, point. Do you really care if he's a Scientologist <laughs> while you're watching what Mission Impossible is? I don't.
2: It comes up the Arthur Conan Doyle, and you know, he, he here you have uh, Sherlock Holmes, who's this incredible rationalist, and you've got Arthur Conan Doyle who embraces the world of spiritualism and magic, hmm. and it, it, it shocks people when they think that Doyle himself is Sherlock Holmes, you know, it shocks them to find out, no, he was very human and he had very emotional views about the supernatural. And the author is not the character. They're not the same. Um, And, you know, I think some of Lovecraft's xenophobia is kind of a core component of the horror that he has, but um and not every one of his stories i enjoy when that creeps in but i love a lot of his work mm-hmm. and i'm able to keep those things apart you know so I, I feel okay about that um anyway i, I didn't want to rant but I, I thank you for sharing your views on that and i'm i'm sure you've answered the question of our listener. so we've got sort of a final question that uh oh and by the way for our listeners uh you Uh, Bob's show is kind of dependent on getting questions. So if you want to hear further episodes of the Lovecraft Geek, you need to send him your questions. And I'm sure if he gets enough of them,
1: he'll pick up and do new episodes. If I don't don't want me speaking for you, Bob. No, that's exactly (laughs) right. I've got about three questions. That's not going to take me very long. And uh, uh, I like doing the Lovecraft Geek, but I I got plenty of other stuff to do. But if anybody does enjoy it, they could help out by sending in some questions.
0: Although you could certainly spread out three questions over a show. If anyone could, it would be. (laughs) Right, you you are. (laughs) Uh, So, the the final question, Bob uh, can you recommend any particular monster film uh, for for our listeners for Halloween?
1: Well, I always make sure I watch um, Bella Lugosi in Mark of the Vampire. Return of the Vampire, in both of which he pretty much plays Dracula, and it's great to see more of him. And I always watch Brides of Dracula, uh, which is a Hammer film, but Christopher Lee is not in it, but it's my favorite of those. Uh, it's just really terrific. And uh, and I uh, often try to squeeze in uh, Curse of the Werewolf. Now, th- I got to say, though, that usually I am watching stuff all October and I try to watch all the major universal horror movies. So if I weren't doing that, I guess I would just simply watch uh, five or six of those back to back on Halloween itself.
0: I've been following you on Facebook and you've certainly been busy watching movies.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Mm. It's it's one of my favorite times of the year. I'm trying to catch up on some of my Italian horror myself. So Mm. I've (laughs) got some, uh, some core you know, classics that I that are still not under my belt. They've been in my collection for a long time. I'm trying to get those done. So uh,
0: that's Bravo. fantastic.
2: Yes, I really appreciate you taking the
1: time to talk to us. And yeah, um, thank
0: you. Your knowledge just is just so impressive.
1: It really is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I'm, and, uh, I'm uh, pleased to to do it. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome.
2: So uh, again, we'll put links to your show in the show notes.
0: Monster dog.
2: Thanks for listening to Monster Talk, an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. You just heard Blake Smith and Karen Stolzno interviewing author and scholar Robert Price about H.P. Lovecraft as part of a special Monster Talk Lovecraft Geek crossover. Links to many movies and books will be in the show notes at monstertalk.org as well as links to Bob's podcast, The Lovecraft Geek. Monster Talk is an official podcast. Monster Talk is an official podcast of Skeptic Magazine. The views expressed here are those of myself and my guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Skeptic Magazine or the Skeptic Society. To see those views, those views of Skeptic Magazine, you may survive a huge storm out in the Pacific, and then, if fate's in your favor, you're washed up on the slimy shore of a mysterious island in the midst of strange cyclopean architecture where you find soggy copies of old issues beneath the clattering multi-legged creatures that defy classification. Or you can subscribe by visiting skeptic.com. But that approach will never get you the really good stuff. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode we strive to bring you the best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. There we have links to our Patreon pages as well as a donation button. A great way to support the show is to buy us books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, and we can share our digital library with each other. Finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys.
1: Hungry for more skepticism? Want to learn the truth about the scientific controversies of our time? Then subscribe to Skeptic, the quarterly magazine Stephen Jay Gould called the best journal in the field. To subscribe, visit skeptic.com today.
2: You are talking about the nonsensical ravings of a lunatic mind.